This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to episode 294 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Maddie Horn. Now, Maddie is not only an athlete at CrossFit Iron Legion here in Ocala, where I train and coach, but she is also a member of the team at Kimberly Center, which is an incredible nonprofit that we have that is a go-between from children being removed from families by DCF and then transitioning into foster care. So we talk a host of topics when it comes to child welfare. Um, this is a topic that's become very close to my heart. If any of you follow me, You'll be aware of what happened with the Baker Act and children in our schools here in Ocala. It's something that I'm trying to bring solutions to. Um, but then we talk about a multitude of other things, abuse, um, the effects of social media on children's mental health, the foster system, and the model that they have at Kimberly Center that I think is so incredible that needs to be copied around the world. So before we get to that interview, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show so you know when it comes out. Leave feedback. I genuinely love reading the feedback that you leave. And then leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible for people that are looking for a podcast like this. And then take whatever means you have to share these episodes. As you can imagine, the content here as parents needs to be heard by everyone. So the more you guys help me share this incredible free content the more lives that we're able to change positively. So with that being said, I introduce to you Maddie Horn. Enjoy.
Okay, well, thank you first for inviting me to Kimberley Center. No problem. For people listening, where geographically are we right now? We are in Ocala, Florida, on the northeast side of town. Brilliant. All right, so I like to start with you and your journey, and then kind of we'll go into, you know, why we're sitting here. Um, where were you born? I was born in Richmond, Virginia. All right. And then tell me just a little bit of your family dynamics. So what your parents did and how many siblings? So I have two brothers. Um, one is 10 years younger than me. One is three years older than me. My parents actually got divorced when I was one. Um, so I never really knew anything different. My mom has been married to my stepdad since I was in third grade. And my stepmom has been in the family since I was like three. Um, so we, um, but we all live in Florida now. I went to school up in Pennsylvania in Western PA in a small college town. And my parents were always in Florida. So when I graduated from school, I did move back here. Um, my mom, my stepdad live, um, in like the Ormond Daytona area, my dad and my stepmom live in Dunedin. So I'm like right smack dab in the middle of both of them. So it's kind of nice, hour and a half to each coast um, to see them. And my brother lives in Jacksonville. So they're all at the beach except for me, but that's okay. Yeah. Would you want to live at the beach one day? Um, I wouldn't hate that. I'm cool where I am right now, but I do. I go see them all the time. So I get the beach and the sun and the tan that I need. Right. Yeah. Perfect. So we met at CrossFit Iron Legion yes. where I work out and coach. Um, so you're obviously, um, you're not just an athlete. You're basically one of the fittest people that we have in our gym. So going to your upbringing, what kind of sports were you playing when you were a child? I wasn't really in sports. I did gymnastics for a while when I was in elementary school. Um, and I ran track one year in high school, but I didn't really get into fitness until college. Um, and so when I got to school, it was just kind of like a hobby. Um, I never competed, did anything like that. And then I was probably, I mean, it was a couple years ago, I started following like CrossFit, CrossFit athletes. So Brooke Ince and Brooke Wells and Matt Frazier. And I got really into like what they were doing. And so I followed them. I knew what was going on. I knew who was winning the games, all that kind of stuff. But I never stepped foot into a, a CrossFit gym until it's probably been about now a year and a half. Maybe. Really? Yeah. So what, what sport were you doing at college? I wasn't playing a sport in college. Oh, you weren't? I was not playing a sport. I was just going to the gym every day after class, working out, um, just, you know, doing something to kind of like get my mind off school and that kind of thing. So, but no sports in college. I didn't really get into fitness until college, but I didn't play sports. Okay. Do you remember your first workout, CrossFit workout? My first? No, I do remember. Um, yes, actually. Well, I went and did the baseline test. And so it was the old one and it was, what do we do? 500 meter row. And then, oh, no, I don't remember. Uh, oh, and then it's like 40 air, squats, air squats, 30, 30. sit-ups, 20 push-ups maybe, and 10 pull-ups is yeah. what it used to be. Yeah. So that was my first one. It was on a Saturday. Everyone was there for the Saturday working workout, working out outside. It was like 95 degrees. I'm like, you guys are all crazy. Sign me up. And then I started going pretty much full-time that Monday. So I started like three days a week. And then a month later, I was like, all right, I want to do four days a week. And then it took me a while, but now I'm going five or six days a week. <laughs> it's like, yeah, every morning, 6 a.m., 
Yeah, amazing. All right. So then you, you mentioned college. What were your career aspirations when you were in college? So my degree was in um, child development, family relations. I have a minor in the sociology of human services, and I was convinced that I was going to be a child life specialist. And so child life is kind of a new field, um, but basically it is in so many words, making the hospital experience less traumatizing for kids with a terminal or chronic illness. Um, and so I did my um, a lot of volunteer work at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in the oncology, hematology, and bone marrow transplant unit. And then I did my internship at Tampa General Hospital in the um, children's ward. And so I learned a lot. But basically, you know, distraction um, during medical procedures, letting children manipulate, um, you know, something that they'll see in a procedure. Um, medical play was huge. Going with them to um, the operating room was huge. And just making it, you know, not as traumatizing for these kids coming in. Um, and that was literally amazing. I did end up getting certified as a child life specialist. And then um, after that, I didn't want to leave Florida again. So I had just gotten home from Pennsylvania, um, and I didn't want to go out of state. My family was here. Um, and so I was kind of being picky on where I was applying for jobs because I didn't want to be far away. And then it just got to the point where um, there was really, there weren't that many options. And so one night I just remember like being at my house and applying for so many jobs um, that I could use with my degree. And I had told myself that I was going to take the first one. And the first one um, was in Ocala doing case management. And so that's kind of how I got into social work. Never in a million years did I think I'd be doing social work still. Um, but I am and I love it. I'm not obviously doing case management anymore, but that is kind of where it all started. Okay. That's interesting what you were talking about with, you said it was child life? Yes, that's the field, child life. Um, and then um, I'm a certified child life specialist, but I didn't obviously go that route. Okay. I had a um, palliative care physician called Dr. BJ Miller on um, twice now. And he started with the Zen Hospice Project. And the whole premise of that where these people were palliative or, you know, hospice care, but every day was supposed to be amazing for them. No matter what was happening, no matter how few days they had left, they would cook like baked chocolate chip cookies every day and take the you know, take the patients out into the into the garden. And it was in a house, an actual house. And I'd never looked at it that way. And I had another friend of mine, Stefan, who talked about ICU and ICU psychosis, where in there there's got the lights and the beeping and everything. And you forget how clinical, and we're going to talk about this where we're sitting now as well, but how clinical some of these medical establishments have come where there's a complete disconnection with nature and, and healing. Yeah. Even. And that's kind of what child life does for kids. Um, so we'd play a lot and we teach them. So we're like the teachers for their illness. So they don't come into the hospital, get a bunch of shots, go into an MRI without understanding what they're doing. And so um, before they have to get that MRI and technology is amazing. And there are so many apps now, um, but they can like build their MRI machine and they can listen to what the MRI will sound like before they even go do it. Um, and, and so it was awesome. And then when I was in Tampa, like we had lightning players coming in from the hockey team, meeting the kids. So all that fun stuff that you see happening um, in children's hospitals, it's usually because of the child life specialist. And we just want to make it fun. Like people are like, how do you spend, you know, your time with kids that are dying, kids that have cancer? Like, how can you do that? It takes a special person. And I'm like, no, like they are the most happy humans living every single day. Like it's their last day. Um, and so it was so eye opening. And it's funny now because 
I wanted to make um, the hospital experience less traumatizing for them. And so fast forward a little bit. Um, now I just want to make life <laughs> less traumatizing for our kids. Um, so I think I've always kind of just, I've, I've always wanted to work with kids. I always have wanted to make a difference and life brought me here instead of there. But I think it was for a reason. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. So when you were a case manager, was it initially here or was it somewhere else first? No, oh, not at Kimberly Center, but it was through Kids Central. Okay. Yeah. So how did you find yourself here? So with case management, um, a lot of our kids go to therapy. And so I had some kids that came to therapy here. Um, and we'll talk about fostering and that whole thing. But some of our foster parents, they sign up to be foster parents. And unfortunately, um, they don't really know what they're signing up for. And so a lot of my kids would have foster parents that worked full-time jobs and they couldn't get to therapy from their foster parent, so on and so forth. So I always, anytime I had an appointment at Kimberly Center, I brought them, I did all their paperwork, I met with a the therapist, I told them what was going on. And also a lot of times the foster parents, they don't know a ton of background on the kid. Maybe the kid has been um, bouncing around from house to house and then we have a foster parent that has no idea what's going on. And so I always thought it was important for the case manager to come in, speak with a therapist just so that they could get the best treatment. And so that um, is how I first started coming to Kimberly Center. And I didn't really think anything of it. I love it here. Everyone's super nice. Um, and what they're doing is off awesome. But I was still a case manager. And then one morning, I got a message from one of our therapists um, that said that Kimberly's was starting a new program. So we got funding for a new program, the Trauma Intervention and Advocacy Program. And he said, you will do awesome. You should apply. And then that same day, one of the advocates reached out to me. You would do awesome. You should apply. And so I applied and I got it. And um, I started here two years ago as an advocate to build that trauma intervention program up. Um, I'm not doing that anymore, but that's how I, that's why I came to Kimberly's. Brilliant. All right. Well, that kind of leads us to, to here. To so if you want do. to tell everyone listening yeah. how this was established and, and then the services it provides for the kids in our area. Yeah. So Kimberly Center has been an organization for 20 years now. Um, it was originally called Kimberly's Cottage. And so a lot of times when I'm talking about Kimberly Center, I'm like, is that the same thing? And it is the same thing. Um, people thought that children resided here. Um, and so we changed it to Kimberly Center. It's not a residential facility. Kids come here for very specialized services and then they do go home. Um, but a children's advocacy center as a whole. So we like to talk about it as um, a one-stop shop. And so basically the premise of children's advocacy centers is to lessen the trauma during an investigation. Um, so there's an allegation of abuse or neglect. We have to figure out what's going on. We know that we're going to have to talk to that child, get that child's story. We want to do it in the least traumatizing way. Um, so say we have an allegation, we'll just say of um, sexual abuse, right? And so what will happen is an investigator through DCF will be assigned They'll go out to the home, they'll meet with the child, they'll meet with their parents, they'll get kind of background information, and then that investigator will contact Kimberly Center. We'll set up a time to bring that child in for a forensic interview. Um, and our case coordinators, we have four case coordinators, they'll do the forensic interview. It's in a very child-friendly room um, with a neutral party, and it's not what you see on TV. <laughs> it's not like the glass where um, you can see in, but they can't see out. We have little cameras and like our light switches. It's um, as least intrusive as we possibly can make it. Um, but they'll talk to the case coordinator. 
And then in the room next door, we have DCF or law enforcement um, or any other community partners that need to hear that investigation, um, the story from the child. So the basis is just to interview this child one time and one time only. After we're done, we shouldn't be talking to that child about the allegation ever again. Um, and so what happens, they pull them back, they kind of build rapport, they get into what I call the meat and potatoes of the interview. Um, the case coordinator will go next door. They'll say, did I miss anything? Do I need to hit anything else? Because again, we don't want to have to re-talk to the child about this they'll go back in they'll end the interview and then um, that interview will be entered in as evidence for any kind of um, court work um, and so we do the forensic interview and then if the child needs a medical exam we can also do the medical exam um, we do have a medical director dr jd steed i don't know if you know him no um, and then two uh, let me three nurse practitioners um, one full-time and then two that work on an on-call basis um, that's the other thing is our forensic interviews, our medicals and our trauma intervention program is 24 seven, 365, because we know that abuse is not just happening between the hours of eight and five. Um, so we do have some 24 hour programs, but like I was saying, if the child needs a medical, they can get their medical exam here. They don't have to go to the hospital. Um, and then we also, um, offer trauma therapy. And so they would come back for those trauma therapy sessions. Um, and it's just one place, familiar faces, you know, um, and like I said, we try to make it as least traumatizing as possible. And like, if the kid needs shoes, we'll get them shoes. And if they don't have any underwear, we'll get them underwear. You know, if their stuff is in trash bags, we'll make sure they're in the duffel bags and that they have outfits and um, that whole thing. So those are three of our big programs. Um, and then, like I was saying, the trauma intervention and advocacy program, that is newer. Um, and that is utilized when a child is removed from their home. Okay. So we also call that our shelter program. So DCF decides that a child is unsafe in their home. They make the decision to remove the child before our program. What would happen is they would go to the DCF office. And they kind of just sat around and they hung out and they waited. And DCF had a list a mile long of the things that they had to do. You know, they have to find placement. Um, they have to contact mom or dad. One of them might be in jail. We got to talk to them. Um, you know, they have to do all their court paperwork for the very next day. And so that kid was just sitting there. Um, and it's not because DCF didn't want them to meet the needs of the child, but we found that they weren't meeting the needs of the child. So we decided to ask for some money, start this program, and now kids can come to us and we'll make sure their physical needs are met first. We do have a shower here. We'll get them cleaned up. We'll get them a new outfit. Um, we'll make sure that they've eaten. A lot of our kids haven't eaten in a while. Um, and then we just hang out with them and we love on them and we play with them and we make sure that um, they understand what's going on. And, you know, I had one little boy who... Um, he came through the program and I like to kind of get an understanding of what in the world happened that day to that brought us here. And so I was asking him, I'm like, what was going on? Like, why are you here? And he said, well, I woke up and I got arrested. And so like he thought since law enforcement had been involved that he got arrested, he was five years old. If he would have gone to school on Monday and his teacher would have asked him, you know, what happened this weekend? He told her she, he got arrested. Like she would have been like, what in the world? And so we just make sure that they understand exactly what's going on. And then in that program, they can also get their first um, therapy session. So that's another one of our 24-hour programs. Um, we just make the removal process less traumatizing. So um, that's one of our newer programs. And then my program is um, the prevention slash community outreach program. 
you want me to go into that now or later? Um, we'll go into that in a second. So okay. I want to go back. So a huge thing. I did the tour last week. Um, and as we we're recording this, my son, Ty, who actually people have heard, he wanted to speak out about what he was going through um, on episode 200. Um, uh, he's going through counseling right now. So in the tour, I was amazed at what a, an incredible, innovative way of thinking the multidisciplinary approach was. So you've got this child that's has or hasn't, let's say they have been abused and then they're brought in and, you know, the first agency interviews them and they go away. Then they go, hey, hey kid, I need to, you know, tell me the story again. Tell me the story again. Tell me the story again. And you can imagine how horrendous that is. Now you add in an environment that probably looks similar to the centers where, you know, my little one ended up um, where everything's, you know, nailed down and go take the shoelaces and all that kind of stuff. That's sterile, terrifying environment. Um I just you've already been through so much trauma and then you're just layering on the trauma and what you guys have done there is so incredible so you've got law enforcement that are embedded here you got dcf embedded here as well yeah so we yeah. just um yeah we have the high risk unit through dcf on site with us as well as one major crimes detective from the marion county sheriff's office and i think we're going to get one children's legal services attorney here um, so that we're not exchanging voicemails on cases and we can just walk down the hall and we can talk to them and we can figure this out um, so it's been really cool we just co-located last year so that's a new thing but it's been super 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 helpful for these cases yeah yeah because i mean when you when you have a any sort of charitable organization, you know, oh, we need donations or, you know, where's it going to go? You built a wing, put all those agencies in house. And now that poor little boy or girl has to tell their story just once. Like you said, then you go and confer, Hey, is there anything else we need? Also extremely intelligent and efficient. You go back and, you know, finish up what you need to know. And then, you know, the, the poor child then goes and, and gets the medical and then gets to, to be in a room with teddy bears and, yeah. you know, pictures on the wall. Yeah. So, I mean, I was absolutely blown away. And I think a lot of agencies and businesses can learn from what you guys did. It's just, it makes perfect sense. Thank you. All right. So then before we go into um, going to the schools, what I do want to do is kind of paint a picture of behind the curtain of, of child abuse. Because I've been a paramedic for, you know, a firefighter paramedic for um, 14 years as a fireman. And even then, didn't, I mean, I saw child abuse, it was horrendous, but I didn't realize not only how much was in the community, but how much was amongst the people that I work with. So the number of firefighters and police officers and, and members of the military that were sexually abused, male and female, you know, that were around drugs, around domestic violence, that were beaten, um, amazed me. And it's, it's interesting because we talk about hurt people hurt people. Well, I think also hurt people help people. A lot of them are drawn to the protector roles. So from your entire like post-college onwards, what are you seeing in the community? You know, what's happening to these children? Well, here at Kimberly Center, we serve 1,200 kids a year. Um, so what you were saying about how it's in our community, I mean, that is a staggering number. Um, and thankfully, we are here to kind of get to that bottom of the investigation because you think about it, if we weren't and we had 1,200 kids that were going through an even more broken system, it's terrifying. Um, but what you were just talking about um, makes me think of the ACEs study. I'm sure you know about the adverse childhood experiences and all of that. Have you heard of that? No, please okay. educate me. Um, so adverse childhood experiences, um, pretty much basically what it says is if you go through um, trauma as a child, it 
It can um, be a factor in early onset of chronic health problems. Um, there's all sorts of like studies about how what it does to your brain and all that kind of thing and how it's generational and the health consequences. And so um, adverse childhood experiences harm children's developing brains, um, and that leads to changing how they respond to stress and damaging their immune system so profoundly that these effects are showing up decades later. Um, and so basically, it's, so there's 10 of them, and basically it measures like physical, sexual, verbal abuse, physical and emotional neglect, a family member who is depressed or diagnosed with other mental illness, maybe addicted to alcohol, maybe in prison, um, witnessing a mother being abused, losing a parent to separation, um, divorce, or another reason. Um, but ACEs are super common, so it says 64% of adults at least have one. Um, and so the more ACEs you have, the more health risks um, that you're going to see. And so these health risks could be heart disease, cancer, diabetes, suicide, alcoholism, that kind of thing. Um, and like I said, um, these ACEs can affect short-term and long-term health. It can impact every part of the body, um, autoimmune disease, arthritis, heart disease, breast cancer, lung cancer, all that stuff. And so I think the more um, trauma that a child experiences as a child, obviously is going to, um, it's going to come out at some point, some way, whether that's mental illness or, you know, physical illness. Um, and so that is what we want to do at Kimberly Center with our therapy because, um you know, kids do heal and, and brains, um, and sorry, this says right here, I have notes. It says that the brain is plastic and the body wants to heal. And this part of the ACEs science includes evidence-based practice, as well as practice-based evidence by people, organizations, and communities that are integrating trauma and form and resilience building practices. So this ranges from looking at how the brain of a teen with high ACE score can be healed with cognitive behavior therapy to how schools can integrate trauma-informed and resilience building practices that result in an increase in students' scores, test grades, and graduation rates. And so the basis of our therapy program is basically that a, that a child can heal. And so we want to get to that child when they're still children um, and help them through that process. And then ultimately they will have healthier adulthoods. Um, so I think what you were saying with like first responders and how, um, and how there, it's just so prevalent. Um, we, we don't want those hurt children growing up, you know, to hurt people. We want to heal them now so that they can grow up and help people. Um, so that's kind of the basis on the ACEs and, and what we do and how we do our therapy here. And our therapy is, not a one-size-fits-all model. And so we take the children and we do different modalities with them. So the clinician will kind of look at the child, talk to the child, see what's going on with the child, and then decide, does that child need play therapy? Does that child need art therapy? Does that child need, you know, EMDR, like we were talking about? Um, can they just sit and talk, you know? Um, and so we are our therapy to what that child needs. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, because... I think the, the word resilience is so important to, to say, oh, a child's been broken. And that's it. You know, handling with kid gloves the rest of the, you know, their life is wrong as well. Mm -hmm. Like I see so many of these people that have been through these horrendous things, through addiction, come out and they're, they're the beacon of light now. They're mm -hmm. the ones leading the charge. Yeah. Um, so what do you see? Have you got any kind of anecdotes of kids you've seen where that resilience has shone through after some pretty horrendous things? I mean, all of our kids, they're just so great. Um, 
No, I mean, we have some kids that graduate therapy and then come back a couple years later and tell us, you know, they got into UF or they're going to do this. We had one kid come into therapy who was who went through some pretty awful things um, come tell us he made it into Harvard. And wow. so that was really cool. Yeah, but I mean, it has a success story, I feel like. Um, it's just about finding that success story and building them up so that they can um, go out and be successful and have those goals and then reach them. Brilliant. All right. Well, you mentioned schools. So yes. let's talk about what you do specifically. Yes. Obviously, you know, when it comes to education, when it comes to, you know, the therapy side, you cannot reach the child when they're with the parent. It's on us as a parent. Hopefully, you know, some are very lucky to be born into households that are very nurturing and some not so much. But the school is the other arena that you get to affect that child. So tell me about your role. Yes. that you do in the schools? So we were lucky enough to partner with the Marion County School System um, to ensure that this year every second grader gets the Child Safety Matters curriculum. Um, and we want to build our program, but I'm only one person. Um, so we're starting with second graders for a few reasons. Number one, it isn't a big testing year. We understand that instructional time is very, very, very important. So second grade's not a big testing year. And then the average age of sexual abuse is actually nine. Um nationwide really yes so if we can get to these kids when they're seven or they're eight in the second grade um, we can give them the understanding that um, it is wrong we can tell them that if it does happen this is what you should do and hopefully um you know, pre prevent it from ever happening. So that's kind of the basis of it. Kimberly Center for 20 years has intervened after trauma and we kind of got tired of it. And we're like, why aren't we preventing this? We can prevent this. Um, and we're not naive enough to believe we're going to stop it. Um, but it's about those ripples. And so this Child Safety Matters curriculum, I did not sit down and write it at Kimberly Center. Um, it is part of the Monique Burr Foundation. Monique Burr passed away. Her husband created this foundation in her name. Um, she was a very big advocate on prevention. And something like 2 million children have sat through the curriculum. It's in 64 of our 67 counties in Florida, 35-some states, and like three countries. So it's huge. Um, and so it's free for our school system, which is also awesome. Um, just it's, it's so important. And so the whole curriculum kind of is centered off of five safety rules. And so real quick I'll just the rules are about um, knowing our personal information what to do in an emergency um, being able to spot red flags or warning signs that maybe something's off or something's dangerous or we might be unsafe um, getting away from a dangerous person or a situation um, if you know that a dangerous person or a situation um, is around then staying away or talking about it um, and so we we really drive home the point of having safe adults um, in our lives and so we need at least two safe adults, I tell our kids, one safe adult that lives with you and one safe adult that does not live with you in the event that that abuse is occurring in the house, you know? Um, and so we drive home those safe adults. We also say, if you decide to tell a safe adult something and they don't do anything about it, you need to keep telling a safe adult until someone listens to you, believes you, and makes it stop. And I tell them, I hope and pray that you only have to tell one person something that's happening to you. But if that is not the case, then keep telling until someone listens to you, believes you, and makes it stop. And then to always remember that if anyone ever hurts you on purpose, it is not your fault. You are not to blame. And you should never be ashamed, afraid, embarrassed, or scared to tell your safe adult and that you will not get in trouble. And so that's kind of what the whole thing is based on. Um, and then we go into the big word of abuse and everyone is freaking out because 
second grade and abuse and private body parts. Um, But like I said, it's happening and it's happening everywhere. And the thing about sexual abuse is that it knows no socioeconomic status. And so you can't, you know, pick one school to go to and not the other because it's happening everywhere. Um, Since I've been at Kimberly Center, our youngest victim was two. And so everyone says second grade's a little bit young. I don't agree. Um, I think we need to teach them body safety as soon as possible. Um, so we talk about abuse. We talk about abuse with words and mean and hurtful words said to you. And um, we talk about abuse to our bodies and unsafe touches and inappropriate touches. And um, and we kind of all obviously gear it back towards our safety rules. And then it's a two-lesson curriculum. So then I go out the very next week and I talk to them about bullying and cyberbullying and how to stay safe when we use our tablets and our you know, computers and our cell phones and our Xboxes and just being kind to one another. Um, so that's what lesson two is all about. Um, and it's just, it's been so rewarding because you can see their wheels turning and they get it and they have no idea that someone that you know can hurt you. They think it's just stranger danger. Um, and so to, to tell them these things and to just, like I said, see their wheels turning. And I, I did have a disclosure actually this week. Um, and so that was also pretty eye opening as well. But she, you know, she, she raised her hand at the end of class and was so brave and said, what do you do if someone's hurting you? But they say that, um, you can't tell or else they'll hurt your family. And I kind of pulled her aside after and I said, is that happening? And she said, yes. And we took action, right? And so if I wasn't there to tell her that that is wrong, um, who knows how long it would have gone on. Um, she was probably terrified to say something, but she saw me as a safe person and she heard what I was saying. And um, she did decide to say something. So we went ahead and did what we had to do with her. But you just never know. Like I said, you never know the ripples that you're making with these kids. So it's been the most exciting, fun, just so rewarding. Um, and they're all so cute and they treat me like a celebrity and I just, I love them all. So that's kind of what I do. Um, we also do, uh, an adult program. And so that would be a two hour training and it's called, um, darkness to light. And so darkness to light has partnered with child safety matters this year to create what they're calling prevent 360. So we can teach these kids how to stay safe all day long, but ultimately it's an adult's job to keep kids safe. It is not a kid's job to keep themselves safe. And so we want to be able to get to these adults. And so um, I have some trainings coming up with teachers. And so the principal kind of sees how important this is. Um, and she's making all the teachers sit through this training. And it's so my kids go through five rules of safety and the parents get five steps on how to keep our kids safer. Um, and little things like not having isolated environments at your school and what we can do to change that and um, that whole thing. So it's just been, like I said, again, it's just so rewarding and so important. And we teach kids like the history of the light bulb and we don't teach them what to do if, you know, their uncle is touching them at a picnic. And so it's just, you know, it's, it makes sense. And I'm so excited and I'm so grateful that, um, I got into the school system and we want to grow the program every single year and eventually hopefully get every child this vital information, um, so that we can prevent these horrific things from happening to our kids in our community. Yeah. My question is this as an observation coming from a different country. And I'm not saying that I was well educated on sex growing up because I grew up as on a farm. My dad was a vet. I knew exactly how every other species on four legs, yeah. you know, had <laughs> sex. And then 
my jaw dropped when I was in, I think it was like 12 years old in that class. And I was like, what? We do it the same as sheep? Yeah. Why didn't he tell me? They tell me they pray to God and they put it in the tummy. But I realized, and, and, and just to pick on the US, cause, cause, it, you know, this is the thing. We have a culture where you can watch John Rambo murder a hundred Vietnamese people and that's fine. But God forbid they see a boob or a butt crack. They, they buzz it out, you know, fuzz it out because you don't talk about that. And to me, that Victorian mentality creates a very, very dangerous environment if you're not teaching your children from very young. And I have with Ty. We've had age-appropriate conversations exactly. from very, very young. Mm-hmm. How can you? T- how can a child understand what's happening to them is wrong if right. you're not discussing it? Exactly. So and some your- kids don't know any better. Um, and so, I mean, that's why the curriculum starts in kindergarten. And so, I mean, like you said, age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate – um, but it, the curriculum does build on itself. So just for example, second graders, they learn their private body parts or the parts of their body covered by a bathing suit, top and bottom, front and back that we keep to ourselves and we don't show others. Um, and you know, they all start to snicker when we talk about that, because like you said, it's just something that, you know, we don't talk about, but it's very, very, very important, um, to do that. I do before my program, um, before I go out to the schools, parents do get opt out forms, right? If you don't want your child to participate in this, because you know, sometimes as parents, we don't want our child to learn about private body parts. We don't want them to learn about sexual abuse. Um, so they have the ability to sign that and send it back. And I get papers back that say something like, and I don't get a lot, but I do get some and they say, um, that's a parent's job to talk about. And it is, I mean, for sure a parent's job. However, I bet that I could watch a YouTube video and change a tire on my car if I needed to, but I let the professionals handle that. And so that's kind of how, um, that's what I say to that is that you can reinforce it all day long, every single day at home. Um, but let a professional teach them about it. And then when they come home and they tell you what they learned, reinforce that and keep having those conversations, um, in your household. I'm not trying to do your job as a parent. I'm just trying to help you out. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how we handle situations like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear a lot of buzzwords, um, like stranger danger. You said that same thing. They're like, well, I, we talked about it. So strange danger. If someone tries to grab you and put in a car, just scream strange danger. Yeah. You know, that's not going into it the level that we need to discuss it. Yeah. Cause we know 90%, um, of sexual abuse is happening to kids by someone they know, love and trust. Okay. So it's not the stranger danger. It's not the guy at the park with the creepy puppy. Like it's, it's our teachers and it's our coaches and it's our pastors and it's, you know, sometimes our own family members. Um, and that's very, very, very hard for kids to understand is what I'm learning. Um, while I'm in the schools is that they have no idea that someone that they know could hurt you. Um, and that's cute in a way because, you know, hopefully it hasn't happened to them. Um, but I tell them always, always, always be mindful of, you know, anyone that you're around. And if you, anyone ever touches you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable or scared or bad or confused, like you have a right to say no, I tell them, um, it is your body and you can say no, no matter who it is, you know, no, thank you. I don't, do not want to be touched like that. And they, um, you know, like I said, they, they're thinking about it and they're just like, I never thought of it that way. I didn't know my teacher could hurt me. And I'm like, and I hope and pray that your teacher doesn't hurt you, but it, it could happen. So just be very careful. Yeah. And, and several of the people I had on that talked about the childhood abuse, it was when they said no to the abuser, it stopped. The abuser had them as a victim. It had them in that, that frozen state, fight, flight, and freeze. And the moment they basically got into the fight, even though they're, 10 
it stopped. Same it even stopped. With, with the school shooters, the same thing. The school shooters that were approached, most of them stopped, dropped their weapon, were disarmed, whatever it was. But if you don't empower the child to, yeah, to protect their own body, then how are they ever going to get out of that, that frozen, terrified stage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good point. Right. Well, then transitioning to, to other areas of mental health in schools. Um, one thing I've talked about a few times is my generation. Um, when the alarm went off at school, it was a fire alarm. I was not a huge academic. Couldn't wait for the fire alarm to go off. So I go outside and play and see some, some sunshine for a bit mm-hmm. or in England, some cloud shine. Um, but that's not the environment these children are in now. Like the last, you know, five plus years, specifically after Parkland. And I was in, I've talked about this a few times on the podcast. I was actually in a code red one time with Ty. I literally brought him back from a annual doctor's checkup and I was signing him in and the doors closed behind me and then, and then the code red went off. And I got to see how vulnerable the children were and the teachers as well, because the only person that was communicating that particular incident was a principal of that school and the lights are off. And these kids are, you know, the older kids are piling tables up against the, the door and, and they're hiding, you know, in wherever they've been told to hide. And that is a horrendous, terrifying thing. Cause no, no kid has been killed in a school fire pretty much since they put sprinklers and fire alarms in. It's been decades and decades. What are you seeing? And it's not the only reason, but what are you seeing overall as far as, um, uh, contributing factors? to anxiety depression in the school child of 2020 i think uh i think there could be a lot of different things that are playing a role like we were talking about with the aces um and how if something's happening like living with an alcoholic parent or witnessing violence inside or outside of the home or losing a parent to divorce i think a lot of that can play a role um i also think that technology plays a huge, huge, huge part of it. And like I said earlier, technology is amazing. We can learn whatever we want um, any time of the day. However, there is this just a complete other side to technology that our children um, are being exposed to. They have access to anything. They're witnessing that um, cyberbullying. And, you know, I think it's easier for kids to be mean over a computer screen than it is to be um, mean face-to-face. And and parents so, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, everybody. I mean, so that's kind of why Child Safety Matters really goes over cyberbullying and what to do if you see mean and hurtful words online. And I even tell these second graders who can't probably even, you know, read a ton of words because they're only in second grade. I tell them, if you ever see any mean or hurtful words, you need to tell someone. I'm like, you do not need to keep that in and think about those words. And I say, sometimes abuse with words and cyberbullying and those mean and hurtful words that people say to us hurt more than abuse to our bodies. I was like, that bruise will go away. That broken bone will heal, but you'll always remember those mean things. And I just drive home the point to talk about it because, you know, so many, so many kids are probably, you know, um, getting cyberbullied or there's mean things going around or inappropriate pictures being sent out and they're not telling their parents because they feel like they'll get in trouble. Um, they feel embarrassed. And so I just tell them, you have to talk about it. You need to tell a safe adult. You will not get in trouble. It is not your fault. Um, but a lot of kids, unfortunately, they hold all of that in. And so I think there's this just crazy dark side to technology that parents just don't really know about and all those different apps and, you know, um, chat rooms and just all of that. I think that really contributes to um, how a child feels about themselves, which ultimately um, relates back to mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard someone talking um, 
I forget what it, how it came up, but they were talking about narcissism. And this one person made a comment how, you know, that was, that was like overtly high self-esteem. And, and as I was driving along in my mind, I was like, no, I, th- I think it's the complete opposite. And then yeah. the actual, the host kind of corrected them or the guest and was like, no. And I think that's an issue with the social media too is, you know, you look at some of these accounts and it's just 5,000 pictures of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like people used to go on holiday and take a picture of the family or the Eiffel Tower mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Now Not they anymore. can't have one without themselves in it. So it's, it's disturbing to me the level of narcissism that you see in, in social media as well. And then these For kids sure. see so much of it. Then they're like, well, I'm not normal unless I have a Nerf playground in my backyard. Constant and- exposure to, yeah, other people and comparing themselves to other people and low self esteem. And yeah, all of that I think plays a huge, huge factor. Yeah. So what about um, tools for the teachers? We had a little discussion before, you know, a mutual friend was talking about this who's in education. Um, right now, in our school district, we've had at uh, different schools um, threats made to the school. We've had, you know, I know that there are um, kids who threaten their own life. And, you know, my, my uh, perspective is there are very well-written protocols that differentiate between some words and some, some true threats that sometimes is not stuck to but that's a separate thing um but what i've witnessed um is you know we're in an environment where there's a lot of these troubling issues where you know you, you shouldn't expect a teacher to be fully equipped for that it is a mental health issue so specifically for you know, what i would almost call like the first responder level for a teacher like the kid just said you know whatever it was what's the kind of gold standard in educating the educator so i think Currently, um, what a lot of the talk is about is about that um, youth mental health first aid or youth first aid mental health. Um, and it is basically like CPR training for mental health. And so it's kind of, um, it's very, very concrete. Um, and it, it teaches people how to say you have a child that is suicidal, how to respond to that, um, how to recognize, respond to, um, that kind of thing. I've never taken the course, um, but I do know it's an eight hour course and that's pretty much all that it's about. Like you said, I don't think it's necessarily a teacher's job to handle mental health, but to at least have a knowledge of, you know, this is what I should do if a child comes up and discloses to me, or this is what I, what I should do if a child comes up and says that they're going to harm the classroom and just being able to just do that very, cause it happens also fast. Um, and so just, you know, reacting appropriately and responding appropriately is huge because it's a very short period of time, um, where they're probably trying to, to respond to that child. So I think that's a big thing. When it comes to abuse, I tell teachers to get the very basic information and let the professionals handle the rest. Get the story. Don't ask a lot more questions. Tell them, thank you for um, telling me. Tell them that you believe them. Don't make any promises that you can't keep. Um, and then let the professionals handle the investigation side of it. Um, but when it comes to mental health, I think that training would be super beneficial for all teachers to get. Yeah, brilliant. And then, again, not picking on... The guidance counselors, I know they have, you know, for example, they have to schedule the classes for the entire school year, you know, so, so I don't know if we've, if they've been assigned the, the correct workload to make them effective at that role. If you could completely reinvent, this is nothing against the, what's in the schools now, what level of counselor would you put in a school? 
And with what background? Well, I, I see, like I said, it's not a one size fits all to me. Um, and I think every child needs something different. So I don't really know that I could say, um, you know, this or that. I know our therapists at Kimberly Center are all master's level therapists um, and they're trained specifically in trauma. I know that schools are pushing towards more um, therapy in the school. And therapy is amazing. And I think every person on the planet needs to be in therapy, young or old. Um, and so I love that they're pushing therapy in the schools. However, when it comes to trauma and it comes to children and these very um, terrible, horrific things that they've experienced or that they've seen or that they've heard, it's hard to pull them out of math class and talk about their sexual abuse history and send them back to English class and then wonder why their grades are not so great. Um, and so us at Kimberly Center, and maybe we might be a little biased, but we like to have a separate space to talk about that. And so really, I don't even, you know, it depends on what the therapy is, but really I like it to be outside of the school setting um, so that they don't associate their trauma history with math class or language arts class, you know, because then they're going to come to math class and they're going to act out, um, you know. And so that's why we are open at Kimberly Center until seven o'clock at night. And so that kids can come here after school. We're not taking them out of school. We understand that instructional time is very important, um, but we do believe that it needs to be in a separate environment. Um, so when it comes to schools, like, like I said, I can't really say this or that. I think the guidance counselors do the very best that they can, but I think every school probably needs at least three more, um, cause there's just so much going on. And, um, you know, we know that one in four girls and one in four boys will be victims, um, of some sort of sexual abuse. And so if you think of a school wide, um, you know, the numbers at a school of how many kids are going through that one guidance counselor is definitely not enough. Um, but that's why there's organizations like us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's why, that's why we're here right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I did want to talk about one more thing as well with, with the bullies and then I'm assuming the, the, the threats, you know, one, you know, one, one view is going to be like, well, I'm glad they got that kid now that now they can get rid of them out of that school or, you know, whatever is going to happen to these children. To me, I look at it completely the other way. Like it's a cry for help. Now, bullying is not good in any way, shape or form for the person that's being bullied. But again, it's, it's that, that hurt people hurt people. What are you seeing any of these people that are attributed to some of these, you know, I'm assuming benign threats in schools and, and, and understanding the psychology behind that? Cause it's kind of a new thing for us outside of prank calls of bombs back in the day. I don't even, I don't watch the news. I don't pay attention to anything that's going on because it depresses me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I really, I don't even know. I think that, I think that there's something. So the way that I look at bullying and these threats and stuff in the schools, I want to know what's going on at home and I want to know what they've been through and I want to get to the bottom of that. And I think that we can't do anything for that child until we figure out their story. Um, and like you said, you know, pulling them out of school is not the only answer. Um, and it's not really even the best answer because they're going to go to another school and they're going to do it and then they're going to keep doing it and they're going to, you know, it's never going to stop. And so until someone really takes an interest in that child and figures out what's going on and helps that child heal, um, with whatever they're dealing with, I don't think that we're going to get anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And it's the same with addiction, the same with, you know, violence, you know, um, all right. Well then I'd love to transition to the world of fostering and adoption because I'm very 
okay. you know, um, uneducated on it. Yeah. I think the, the number of available foster beds that you have is terrifying at the moment in our county. Mm-hmm. So like maybe zero. If you want to give, yeah. So give us fostering um, yes. 101. So, um, Marion County just, I, that's the, really the only thing I can speak to. The last I heard, we're completely at max capacity. Um, and so we look to other counties to place our children which stinks because then they're moving schools and we're adding more trauma and they're separating from their siblings and that's terrible um and so to foster in marion county at least um you have to go through like a little bit of an interview why do you want to do this kind of thing um you have to get a home study done and then you take classes and they're about eight weeks long um you take a class and you can get your home licensed but we need more foster homes and even if you could take one child for, you know, six months out of the year, that is helpful. Um, and so I tell everyone, if you have ever even thought about it, like just get your home licensed. You don't even have to take a kid right away, but to have your home licensed, you never know, um, you know, what it could turn out to be. And so even like you said, even if, even if you don't take a kid right away, but just to have that availability, I think it would be super help, super helpful. And then I, for people to know just about how it works, you kind of like build a profile. And so say I wanted to foster and I only wanted to foster kids that were six and under. Um, and obviously we don't want to discriminate against our teenagers, but I understand some teenagers might intimidate adults because of what they've been through and they're not ready for that and fine, whatever. There are plenty of newborns that need a home. Um, and so what happens is um, Kid Central is who it goes through. Kid Central will call you and they'll say, we have siblings ages two and four. This is what's going on. Um, would you like them? And ultimately, it's in the foster parents' hands. If you don't want to, if you're not at a place, you say no, not right now, and they hang up the phone and they call the next one. Um, and so that's kind of how it works. But yeah, we we are at max capacity, which we have some really awesome foster homes, um, but we definitely we don't have enough foster yeah. homes. Yeah. Well, Becky and I even talked about, she's about to go away to medical school. So timing is not ideal now, but I mean, I absolutely, you know, would consider it when she was done with that. It's amazing. But, um, so what, what are the time periods for the foster family? So these are kids that are taken by Mm -hmm. DCF. Yeah. So they're basically in limbo at that moment. Mm -hmm. They need a home. They need, Mm -hmm. you know, a roof over the head and food in their stomach Mm -hmm. and love, hopefully. So time period of how long they're going to be in the home. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. So if you were a foster parent, like how long would you expect expect? that child to be with you? And so I've never been through the actual foster classes themselves. Um, Not yet, at least. But I think you can choose between like um, fostering just to foster or fostering to adopt. Um, And you can kind of pick the route that you go to. So if you pick the foster to adopt, obviously you're going to hope and pray um, that they're with you for a long period of time. to foster just to be a foster parent, it, you have no idea. Every case is completely different. Very general. Um, kids are removed from their home and their parents get about a year from removal um, to kind of get their act together, we'll say, um, and until reunification. And so a year is probably... It's hard to say because, I mean, like I said, every case is different, but a year is probably average. Mm-hmm. Um some kids go home right away. Some kids never go home. Some parents do the bare minimum for that year. And then at, towards the end, they start picking up. They're like, oh, crap, my year is over. I need to. And they'll get an extension, whatever the case may be. Um, but uh, probably about a year is what I would say generally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so 
for everyone listening, if you uh, have any interest at mm-hmm. all, then you're sorely needed and right it now. It is, yeah. It's it's zero to seventeen. I mean, when I was a case manager, I wheeled a baby out of the hospital. They put me in my skirt and my heels in a wheelchair with a newborn in my arms, like I was the mom. And they told me, just because you're not the mom, doesn't mean that you can walk out of the hospital with your newborn. And so <laughs> this child was being removed. Mom had to go back to jail. And they wheeled me right out of the hospital. Um, and so, and so it could be a newborn. It could be literally a two day old. It could be a kid that's 17, about to be 18 in a couple months, and they just need a place that they can go to. Um, and so it's kind of, it's cool because the family gets to experience everything. So those foster parents, they might think they only want a five year old, but then they get that 13 year old and that 13 year old changes their lives completely for the better. Um, so fostering, I literally, it's so rare for me to hear negative experience about a foster home. So, um, it's really awesome to see. Brilliant. And then, and we're talking about singular right now, but I mean, some, some families might be up to six kids you had Mm -hmm. in, in a family that need to be fostered. Yeah. Well, with the shelter program, our biggest, uh, family group was six children. Yes. And so, um, yeah, that is tough. And the hardest part of my job, I tell everyone, is telling siblings that they're getting split up. And when that does happen, um, I just hope and pray that the foster parents will facilitate that relationship um, and do those sibling visits because that's so, so, so important for these kids. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to transition to something I always ask anyone who's in palliative care, you know, what you're doing here, um, you know, therapists themselves. As first responders, we know that there's a toll. You know, what we see, what, what we see, what we do, it, it chips away. It fills the bucket or empties the bucket, however you want to look at the analogy. Um, and so self-care is extremely important. We've talked about CrossFit. What other things do you do to make sure that, that you don't get broken down yourself? Well, I'm a dog mom most importantly. (laughs) So my dog and I are always doing something. CrossFit is huge to me. It's the first thing that I do every single morning. And I know because work is draining and it, it really, you know, when you are in this field and you're working with humans and you're really, um, compassionate about it and you're empathetic, you literally feel all your emotions going to other people. Um, and so I know how important it is for self-care. And so I make sure that, you know, doing something for me at the start of every day um, is something that I continue to do. And so people tell me I'm crazy. I work out at 6 a.m. But I'm like, if I don't work out at 6 a.m., I will not be there at 5 p.m. because I am exhausted. Um, so making sure that I just get some me time in is huge, um, is a huge factor in that. And my dog and going to the beach. And um, I'm very much leave work at work type of person. I don't have my work email on my phone. I don't check it on my laptop at home. I leave at five o'clock and I don't even try to think about it until the next day. Um, obviously that's not the case sometimes. Like when I had that child tell me that someone's going to hurt her if she tells, that went home with me. Some of these cases, I, le- I mean, I leave here and I cry. So it's not something that always happens, but I really try to just leave it here so that I can show up the next day and, you know, be a better version of myself. Um, because if I let it take over, it will take over. Um, and so nobody wants that. Nobody wants burnout. And that's kind of just why the turnover rate is so huge in social work is just because people let it take over their lives and you just can't do that. Make time for your friends, make time for your family, make time for your dog. Um, because you can't obviously pour from an empty glass. Yeah. What about your nutrition? What does that look like? Everyone thinks I eat so healthy. <laughs> and I'm so sad to say that I don't. I mean, I 
I, I'm probably about 75, 25 with my eating habits. You know, I eat the chicken and the broccoli all the time, but I also will eat the pizza and drink the beer on Friday night. But that's normal um, though. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, I, I do try to be healthy, but my nutrition, <laughs> my nutrition could use some work. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly it's, it's fueling you fine though, from what I see on I the can't, whiteboard. I literally can't <laughs> eat enough. <laughs> All right. Well, then um, let's talk about fundraising then. Okay. So we, our gym did um, Unbroken, mm -hmm. raised 6,000, yes. which is incredible. 6, yep. That's why I love CrossFit Iron Legion so mm -hmm. much because we do so much. We've got Downs for Donuts coming up, the Down Syndrome. Um, so tell me about the reason for that specific fundraising and then over and above that, what else you know, the, the funds can do to help these children and help you guys facilitate it. So we did Unbroken to raise money for our outdoor therapeutic play area, aka our playground. Um, and so we are building a playground, this like Mac Daddy macho playground that is just going to be so cool. Um, but that trauma intervention and advocacy program that I was talking about with these kids that are going into foster care, they're removed from their home, they come to us, we try to make it as fun as possible. Um, but to get a foster bed, it's about four to seven hours in Marion County. Um, so it's a long time. And the room that we have for them has no windows. And so very, very quickly, we started realizing that we need to give these kids a place to release energy. Um, I can only walk around the parking lot so many times. Sometimes they let me go throw the football outside, but other times they're like, that's not safe. That's a parking lot. Um, and so, you know, we go outside and we do chalk and we started just I needed to get them outside. I need to get them outside and I need to get myself outside um, because it's a long time. And these kids have just, you know, been taken from the only home that they probably know, the home that they know how to survive in. And we put them in a room and I can only sing so much karaoke and play so much connect four with them. So we really try to make it fun. Um, but yeah, so we are building a playground so that we can get these kids outside to release energy. We also are going to be able to do some of our trauma therapy outside. So there's going to be a waterfall and a sand tray and all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and so that is um, what Unbroken helped us with. I believe we're pretty much there with our money for that. Um, but there's so many different ways people can help out. You can do um, a one-time gift. You can be a monthly partner. We can do in-kind stuff. Um, Christmas is huge. You can sponsor families. Back to school is huge. Get those um, backpacks stuffed with pencils and markers and all the other random tissue boxes that these kids need these days. Um, even little stuff, like I know Valentine's Day is tomorrow. We'll get like bags of candy to give out to our kids or Halloween um, candy to give out to our kids. And so people think of us for literally everything. Um, so there's so many different ways that people can help out. Brilliant. And then you got the 5K coming up. We'll talk we about that. We have our 5K. Yeah, that's one of my favorite events. Um, that is April 25th, I believe it is. And we, we tell literally everyone, just come out, walk, run, cartwheel, bring your dog, just come out. It's just, it's such a fun day. Um, and it is during child abuse prevention month. So it kind of hits home for us. Um, so that's this coming April. And then there's a bunch of stuff just throughout the year. People will, we have what's called a milestone center. And um, when kids hit that milestone in therapy, um, they get to go in and they get to pick something out. Um, and when our kids come in with no shoes on, you know, we have to keep that stuff stocked here. Um, and so we have a whole room of just, you've seen it. It's like you walk into a toy store. It's amazing. So people just in their offices will just do a drive um, for stuff for our milestone center. Or they'll do like a toiletry drive because our kids that are taken from their home. Probably the last thing that you're going to think about getting is 
floss and toothpaste. Um, and so when they come to us during that shelter program, we hook them up. We give them shampoo and soap and brushes and whatever that they need um, to get through the next couple of days because we want that foster home to stay as stable as possible. And so we want to help that foster parent out with little things like that. They're probably not expecting to get a sibling group of six in their home that day. So if we can send them there, um, you know, clean and with shoes and with extra underwear and extra socks, then that will end up helping the foster parent. Um, and that foster parent will be more likely to keep them in their home. Um, and so it's a support for the child, but it's also a support for the placement resource as well. And so, like I said, people in their offices will just hold drives and they'll come in with like a whole bunch of stuff for us. Um, constantly. So it's really cool. Very cool. And actually, one thing we didn't talk about, I just want to make sure that we do discuss is the other element that you guys offer is when these kids go through, you know, they, they come through, they find the foster parent, then there's an ongoing counseling for them mm -hmm. as well so they can process all the horrendous yeah. things that they were taken from yeah because we know like i said children can heal and so our therapy program and side note everything that we do is free we don't charge for a single service um they could come for 10 years we're not going to charge them not once um and so that's kind of why donations and our you know our fundraisers are really important for us but yeah so our therapy program again is free it is bi-weekly um hour-long sessions completely individual between the child and the therapist um parents always want to sit in on their kids therapy and we're like no not here you cannot do that um the parents do have a chance to speak with the counselor either before or after each session and kind of talk about what's going on the therapist will give them tools to take home with them um, but yeah, that child can heal. And like I said, we have to heal them when they're still children. Um, and even though something horrible has happened to them, we do believe um, that they can get better and that they will come out from this. And we don't want to see them forever. And we don't want to talk about this trauma forever. And so we like to say that it's about 12 sessions long. Because um, the more, and kids leave and they, you know, a year or two goes by and then they develop, you know, they're growing up and they're maturing and they're developing and Things are triggering them, and they can always come back, and it's free. Um, and so we've had some kids coming. One kid came here when he was three years old, and I think he's like 12 now, and he'll like come for a few sessions. He'll be all right. He'll leave. He just loves his therapist so much that he just like always wants to come back and see her. Um, but like I said, we do believe children can heal, and so we don't do weekly sessions because – we want them to start, you know, having tools in their toolbox to cope while they're not at therapy. Um, and so they go two weeks and they can kind of use what they learned in therapy in school or at home. Or um, if something triggers them, they have that, you know, that toolbox that has those coping skills in them so that they can um, process everything and kind of do it on their own without their therapist right at their side. So, yeah. And then the, the free thing, I mean, it sounds amazing sitting here in the U.S. where everyone else has to figure out if a counselor is in network and what the copay is and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But that's a huge barrier to entry to the mental health in, in my community. And, and the number of nightmare EAP stories I've heard of them settling with a counselor and they tell it, start telling them what's going on and what they've seen and the counselor's in tears or the counselor shows them the door, I can't help you, you know. So to have you guys completely well-versed in trauma and then removing that barrier to entry where if a kid needs to help that's it they're going to get help is is incredible and i i wish as our actual national healthcare system that we would model that because health is way more important than owning a winnebago 
And we, <laughs> and we actually, we sat in a staff meeting. We have staff meeting every Tuesday and our executive director, Don Westgate, she basically told us, she handed out post-it notes and Sharpies and she said, write down barriers. And we wrote down barriers, transportation or um, cost or whatever the case may be. And we put them on that whiteboard up there and she went up there and we talked about each one and how we could um, remove that barrier because we want these kids to be able to come to therapy and to finish therapy. We see a lot of kids that come for their initial appointment, that trauma assessment, and then um, they maybe come back for a session or two and then something happens to where they can't finish it. And so her goal that day was how do we get more kids graduating from our therapy program? Tell me everything that you think is happening um, that is a barrier to this and let's work on fixing it. And so it's just cool to be part of an organization that is being so um, proactive about stuff like that um, because you can just tell. I mean, in not bashing anyone or any organization, but you know who truly wants to help and you know who's doing it for a paycheck. Um, and so that, I mean, I just, I could talk about Kimberly Sitter and what we do all day long. I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, I mean, I said having Ty here, viewing, talking to you, um, I think it's amazing. And I think you've got so many things right. And I think it really is a model that a lot of people in all these associated fields should have a look at. Um, because yeah, I mean, that's the, the goal is remove barrier to entry and focus on the health of the nation that should be at the absolute pinnacle of, of what we do. Yeah. We're always like, what can we do next? We're literally out of space. So if we add one more program or anything, I always joke. I'm like, well, only way we can go is up. So soon we'll probably have like an elevator in Kimberly Center because we're just always, if we see something that maybe is broken or that we could do better, our executive director is always the first one to be like, all right, well, let's do it. Um, so it's just, it's an awesome place. Awesome people. If anybody ever wants to come out for a tour, we do those tours, um, the first Friday of every month. Um, and so I don't know if you can put my information somewhere or Nikki's information who does the tour but I really I mean I recommend our tour people people think that they know what we do at Kimberly Center and then they come for the tour and then they leave crying and they're like you guys I mean I mean not to toot our own horn but I'm pretty sure we have it figured out for the most part yeah absolutely well speaking of the link so I'll put the link to the Kimberly Center on the web page which is at jamesgearing.com for this episode perfect all right closing all questions right. then Uh-oh. so First question, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something related to what we've discussed or something completely different. There, I mean, there's not a single book. I read suspense thrillers and that's about it. So, I mean, you know, Aaron in Aaron's book club at yes. the gym and she's always wanting me to read, you know, tribe and all those ones. And I think that they're probably amazing. Um, but no, when I'm reading, I do it for leisure and I want to be scared and I want to be, you know, so I read those suspense thriller books, not one single book, but just to sit down and read something and get your brain off of everything that's going on in our world is like, 10 out of 10 for me. Beautiful. Get outside. Any famous, uh, excuse me, favorite authors? I don't even have a favorite one. I just literally go to the suspense section of Barnes & Noble and I, and they end up all like literally being the same, same ending, same family <laughs> dynamics, but I can't, I mean, I can't get enough of them. Yeah, brilliant. All right. The Bible, I think everybody should read the Bible. Yes. That's a story for another day. <laughs> yes. Everyone should not only read the Bible, but actually maybe take some of the things in there Absolutely. for what they actually mean. For Kindness, sure. compassion, gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So next question, a movie that you love. I don't watch TV. You don't, are there any documentaries uh, you've seen? Anything like that? 
I'm the worst person. I no, you're not. That's that's. A I good don't watch thing. TV. I you never don't. do. I can't sit still long enough. Awesome. If I do try to watch TV, I fall asleep every single time. Never fails. Movie theater. It could be anywhere. I don't watch it. I don't watch TV. Yeah. When I do watch TV, I watch reality TV. And so the pattern here is that when I'm doing something like reading a book or watching TV, it's because I want to not think about what's going on in the world, and I want to, you know, when I watch TV, it's mindless. Shut off. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Um, actually, I've got a. I saw a documentary. It's a Netflix limited series. Are they? You know, it, it's still TV. So I don't know if you watch it, but it was called "Tell Me Who I Am," and it was these two English twins. And one of them, when he was eighteen, had a motorcycle crash and got amnesia, like full on amnesia. Never actually, you know, regained the the memories. I don't think. Um, and so his twin. He literally had to ask his twin, like, who am I? Who's this? What's this place? This is your house. This is your mother. And for a long, long time. It's a true story? Yes. Okay. Yes. And he believed the story he was told. And a series of events led to him realizing that he'd been told a lie the whole time. And he, they were actually both sexually abused by their mother and lent out as boys to family friends. This is a very affluent family, too crazy story so then there was hatred towards the brother hadn't told him and then processing the trauma so if you were going to watch some tv i should i recommend that it was it was awful to watch like a lot of these true stories are but so well done and so pertinent to to what you guys do here so i'll have to look that one up yeah i do like true crime yeah side note i'll watch a and e all day long oh you are (laughs) (laughs) see and we live that so we don't watch that so much So the last thing I want to get to then is to make sure that everyone knows where to find the Kimberly Center and also if they want to reach out to you, the best mode of communication before 5 p.m. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so our Facebook is somewhat active. Um, everybody's got Facebook, and so um, we can always get back to people on Facebook. Our phone number here. I don't know if you want me to put our phone number to Kimberly Center. No, I'll put, like I said, I'll put you the link put to the, the, the website yeah. so people can find it there. I, I'm never in the office, so I would tell you to call me all day long, but you'll probably get my voicemail because I'm across the county every single day at schools. Um, so email is probably the best way to reach me. Um, I'm at Iron Legion every morning from six to seven. <laughs> <laughs> For all the creepers um, out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, email probably would be the best. And, and we also, we're trying to grow our prevention program. And so if anyone has it in their heart to kind of do that child safety matters curriculum in the schools, um, even just as like a volunteer, like, Hey, I can do one or two classes here and there, but I would love to get trained. Like we're looking for people that can do that. Um, because we want to get this out to every kid and I, there's no way I'm going to make it to, you know, every single child K through 12 in Marion County. And so that's kind of our next thing with prevention is how do we grow it? Um, and we really want people who obviously are passionate about prevention and they think that it's very important. And so if you have it in your heart um, to do any prevention, reach out to me. If you have it in your heart to become a foster parent, reach out to Kids Central. Um, there's so many ways to get involved and help these kids. Brilliant. And then just to, to, to make sure I have it, what is your email? It's Maddie, M-A-D-D-Y-H at Kimberly's, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y-S center.org. Brilliant. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you thank so much. Thank you. Did um, we run over time? I feel like I've been talking forever. No, no, no. It was, uh, it was perfect. Okay. Five o'clock. So time will be walking out in about good, two minutes. Good, good, good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been 
I've been in this whirlwind education on what you guys do and even childhood trauma with, you know, what inadvertently happened to, to him. And, um, being so involved in the mental health world, not as an expert myself, but as a, as a student, um, I still was so ill-informed about this whole arena. So just thank you for an hour of amazing content that I think people are really going to learn from. Thank you.